Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility. And this week, I'm talking to someone I met on last year's Thrutopia Masterclass someone who came along to share and experience and explore the ideas of how we can write that future that we would be proud to leave behind. Elisa Rastja is an artist, a filmmaker, a podcaster, a writer, an unschooling parent, and a homesteader whose life is an expression of her philosophy that we need to live closer to and in harmony with the land. And if that doesn't sound right up the accidental God street, I don't know what does. Elisa and her family farm one and a half acres on Salt Spring Island off the west coast of Canada, between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. And that's where she makes her Apple Turnover TV channel for YouTube, with short films showing the ways she's rediscovering, or in some cases creating new, ways to grow and thrive on and with the land. We've had some fairly hardcore conversations recently on the podcast, and I thought it was time for something inspiring, less of how we fix the broken structure at national level, and more how we can each live different lives, tell ourselves different stories of who we are and how we are and why we are doing what we're doing, get into the detail of composting toilets and community buses and how to keep chickens and geese and sort the water when it floods, all the things that we are really going to need to learn or relearn or otherwise bring into being as we shift forward into the small farm future that Chris Smage was talking about last week. So this is a truly regenerative episode about regenerating our souls as we heal the land. People of the podcast, please welcome Elisa Rathja, creator of Apple Turnover TV. Elisa, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a real delight to be talking to you all the way from the far west coast of North America. I can't remember where you are. Tell me where you're based. I'm on Salt Spring Island. So it's right over the west coast, um, southwest coast. So it's called the Salish Sea and it's between Vancouver and Victoria, if you know those cities. Brilliant. It sounds really idyllic. And having watched little bits of Apple Turnover TV, it looks really idyllic. I imagine that when the storms are coming in off the sea, it's probably slightly less idyllic. Did you grow up there? I grew up nearby. So folks who go to North Vancouver know Deep Cove. It's kind of infamous. Also incredibly beautiful. So, yeah. But you decided to go off the coast and to somewhere that I imagine you can only get to by a ferry or by a plane or something exactly. else? Exactly, yeah. Seaplane or ferry, yeah. Wow. And are there times of the year when you just can't get through? Uh, it happens. It does happen, especially if you want a plane. Like, that's that's super dodgy many, many times of year. But the the ferries are, you know, gigantic beasts that generally run. It's actually just harder now because they're having trouble staffing 
like every other place in the world is having trouble staffing everything. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, wow. So there's been some limits. Yeah. Okay. That's, we might get to that predatory capitalism dying as we speak, but let's, <laughs> let's start with something lighter and, and easier. Amongst the many, many things that you do, you are the creator of Apple Turnover TV. So talk us in a little bit to the philosophy behind that and behind the way that you live so that we can see how it arose, why it arose, and then we can go through how you are living and what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm not a first-generation farming family kind of. It wasn't continuous. It got dropped for a couple of generations. So this is this is patching together knowledge, which is really that reconnecting to traditional skills is where this came from and I mean I, I'm an artist and I've always allowed the the idea to take precedence and I will learn what I need to learn to make the project and so that kind of followed through we moved to England at one point my family we've got two kids and my partner's English so we we moved to London and then ended up in the countryside in Sussex and we never, we never looked back. I think London met so many city needs that no city would do after that anyway. And what we were longing for just, um, I think it started with food. You know, so many things start with food. And we wanted, you know, fell in love with chickens. And we, we had a garden. And it just, I, I don't know how it was, but it was like arriving in England and the deep history that I was connecting to there, I started studying and, you know, it was the, the world of blogging. And at that moment, this is over a decade ago. Uh, and so I was writing about traditional skills and right. I would just get people to teach me how to make cheese and how I, I learned to forage for elderflower and make wine and everything else. And I was learning just every skill around every part of how we live. I love learning how we, how things are made and mm. bringing it home into our own hands. And I didn't really understand at the time, but now, now I can see that those traditional skills, they are a way of de-industrializing. It's, it's relocalizing in your own right. life. Yes. And so I didn't really understand until um, we'd come back to, we lived on a lake in Vancouver Island for a while and that's where we first got chickens and we were really growing things and starting to get into permaculture. I, we lived near an amazing permaculture farm and just, you know, absorbing it all and at the same time really dawning on us how intense the converging crises are so you know finding this place it's like an acre and a half and it was it was built by people who knew they wanted to homestead so they really put everything in place actually it was first it was a all, this whole area was apple orchard from like victoria and i've got some victorian trees here 19 sorry, 1800s. And wow. um, 
Yeah. And so everyone who's lived here, artists, and there was a Mennonite carpenter, a painter, everyone has just um, layered on more of just, it's not self-sufficiency, it is community sufficiency, but it, it is having having what you need right here. And so you can see it in how the buildings are are made and you can see it in what plants are here and just the structures for living, root cellar, pond, studio, woodshed. So uh, just to go back in a little bit of the history of the island itself, was it inhabited before the, the white invasion? By, yes. Were there indigenous peoples there? Yeah, this is a really important island because it is between the really major island. Um, it's not as big as England, but it's a very big island, Vancouver Island, and the mainland. And so my understanding, I am on land that is unceded. It's uh, the Homolkaminam and Sincotan-speaking peoples. And we say that it's it seems quite wide, and it is because lots of different groups did use and still do use this land Um, and it was often a stopover and you would stop and the story that I was told by an elder is you know there's lots of burial sites here and middens you know it, it was somewhere where you stopped and feasted before you would paddle your boat onward and what kind of distances are we talking then between the mainland, you, and then you and Vancouver Island? How, how long to I'm, paddle a boat? I'm, I'm totally hopeless with that. I wouldn't even know. It, I mean, the ferry, gas-powered, massive ferry, which I imagine is kind of slower. Um, to get to the mainland, that's an hour and a bit, an hour and 15. So it's major. Okay, uh, but it's not it's, weeks. It's, it's maybe it's a day's paddling if you're in a canoe. Max. With a bunch of strong fellows. Strong yeah. Paddlers. And then yeah. and then to get to Vancouver Island, it, how long does that take? Oh, it wouldn't be long at all. Like there's there's a a fifteen minute ferry and I think they can speed up. I heard someone said their mother was in labor and suddenly that ferry could go really fast, but they're being a bit more efficient going like twenty minutes to get over. Wow. Okay. So it's yeah. easy. You can see then you can presumably see the mainland and see Vancouver Island oh, from yeah. where you are. Uh, you can't see the mainland. Well, I guess you can maybe see some mountains from certain perspectives. But um, yeah, you can certainly see Vancouver Island. And uh, now and then someone has this mad idea about a bridge. Oh, do, yeah, Please no. don't do that. <laughs> no, no they did a bridge to sky. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Yeah, no, don't do it. It'll destroy everything. Also, nowadays, there probably aren't the materials left anymore to do it so let's not go there. It's absurd and what's the ocean going to do to it? Yes quite the whole thing is crazy but but let's come back to I'm developing an image of an island that I still don't know how big it is tell us in a minute how big it is but it's a community of artists and creators and self-sufficient people could the whole island be self-sufficient do you think if something happened and you were cut off would you all be able to survive there? Uh, In theory we totally could in theory. Like we are 80 square kilometers and there's 12,000 permanent residents and we expand to 20,000 or more in the summer. So this is a lot of summer residencies. Now yeah. we have this fascinating history of African-American slaves uh, who, who were freed, who came up here. So 
the road that I'm close to is named after a very important family who who settled here and then yeah actually so a hundred years ago we were producing the fruit for the mainland right it was getting ferried over there this was before the Okanagan really became our fruit producers so and people here are extra like we've got a fantastic food culture we're uh, uh, infamous for the market having said that we're still only eating about five percent here and we're, so we're importing an absolute ton. And there's most people shop at the grocer. Most people do not shop at the farmer's market. There's a lot of CSAs and there's more and more farming. But this is also the most, it's a very expensive part of the world. And we have seen our property taxes triple in the seven years that we've been wow. here. And we are looking at, you know, hotel culture where you, you basically are importing your staff from off island. There's nowhere to live. It's all Airbnb. It's the same as it's basically take London and make it a tiny little island. Same problems. A lot of people slightly less pushed out from the, uh, well, we have tons of roads. We've got an amazing like we're a transition town. And we have got a really fantastic activist population. And we have like old settler families as well. And there's plenty of conflict or discussion, heated discussion about how the land should be used or protected by the trust right. um, development. I helped write the climate action plan with that was, um, you know, transition took that on. And they are implementing it and they're doing incredible things. And uh, we're not incorporated, so we don't have a mayor. Um, we've got all these different complicated levels, but we just brought in our own little layer of government. And one of the people on that, well, we've got several people who created our bus system, which is meager, but it's, it's still there. And uh, we just had a big rally that I felt compelled to stand up and speak at, um, to talk to our transportation minister because we're trying to get bike lanes and slow down these roads. I found an article from 1960 accidentally complaining about the speed of cars on the oh. roads and that someone couldn't take their horses out. So this is an old conversation. <laughs> but we got rid of our car five years ago. You as a family got rid of your car. As a family, yeah. So we've got electric bicycles. We got a cargo bike, and so I could throw a, a child on the back of that. Now she's taller than I am, so I I do that still, but only like on a flat to go to the lake. Can we go jump in the lake? And there's it's electric, right? So I'm, okay. I it's not just me. Help. <laughs> but I I refuse to go up the big hill. It was very hilly here. And the shoulders are non-existent. So people come here and they stop riding bicycles after having ridden all over the place. So it's tragic, but it doesn't have to be this way. So the really, it's all, I think it's all there to grow the food. And right, like we have, this is agricultural land that I'm on and there's lots of it. Water is a thorny issue. We've become more Mediterranean we have these long, hot summers that the firs are hating, the cedars are hating. 
Hmm. It, we used to just have a lot of drizzle. It's always been drier on these islands than where I was. I was at the bottom of a mountain, like the most rain in, in BC was like just near us. But there's still, you know, there's folks who are experimenting with uh, growing avocados outdoors, like to right. try to find, I'm growing lemons. I give them like little lights in the winter and a little curtain. Um, and they, okay, they almost died last year, but that was my neglect. <laughs> because we're having more extreme temperatures. This is, and this is climate change. We're seeing active climate, climate change. change happening around you. Wow. Yeah. So can, can we take a bit of a step back? Let's assume that there are some people who are listening to this podcast for the first time, because there always are, and who mm-hmm. might not know what permaculture is and might not know what a CSA is. Let's do oh. a little bit of exploring the philosophical and conceptual underpinnings to what you're doing. So a CSA is a community-supported agriculture, and it's a fascinating idea where you you will buy in and you'll tell a farmer, yeah, I'll, I'll pay you this amount of money and you'll get your veg or your fruit box scheme through them. And you know, the farmer knows how many people they're going to be feeding. They can therefore plant for them and it's direct. You don't have the cost of a middleman person and it just creates more security for the farmer and means you've got incredible fresh veg coming to you. I would like to see even more models where we draw on some technology like, for example, um, well, I'm trying to grow all the potatoes. I want to produce all the potatoes. I, gr- I All eat. the potatoes for the whole Ireland the- or, Ireland, or oh, just no. all the potatoes for you? Just my family. family okay, okay, okay. And so I've thrown them all under hay bales to grow through the hay bales. So there are hay bales everywhere in every tree guild. So now tree guilds, yeah, so I would, I would like to see people um, be able to say to a farmer, hey, can you produce all this spelt grain? We've got all these families. We've got a collective mill. I have a bicycle mill in my kitchen, but we could easily have a community mill. And how about throw in some extra for the chickens so that we have local grain? Like we could do that if we were organized and working together. And there's evidence of that happening here where people have gotten together during the pandemic with fear around and actual like food shortage. They started growing on shared land or someone donated the land for it, lent it, and they, they, they have been growing all their food. They're really, really amazing. And it, and it came through an emergency pod. So my understanding is that transition here is about to roll that out so that all of our little communities can start to get together and grow more collective food. So it's not everyone can do what I'm doing. Like you don't, do you have time for this? Like, yes, is this, uh, do you, uh, how are you paying your mortgage and what do you, or do you, are you even interested in growing your food? Like we don't need everyone to be interested or good at it. We need, just need more of us to be. So, Have you got an idea of roughly the percentage of people who would need to be interested and moderately good at it to feed the rest? Because you're on an interestingly contained area. Yeah. And, and I've, I think that number is going to change depending where you are in the world. But in the old days, not very long ago, in the generations past of your family and my family, everybody grew something or they had a pig in yeah. the back or some chickens. 
until people were herded into towns and and actively and deliberately had that link to the lands cut, everybody was good at it and everybody did do a bit. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of my histories is my 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 mother's Finnish and my father's German, and the Finns were all on the land. They were all like farming peasants, actually, and. And my mother got chased by geese, which I now have geese myself. <laughs> like chased her to the outhouse and back again. And my father's, they were in a village and they had the village shop and they had a courtyard and they always had a pig in the courtyard. And then they went out to the fields nearby and had strawberries. And he would go into the cellar and get fresh whipped cream from his grandmother. I slept in the attic where they had smoked the meat. It was right. unbelievable. And... So yeah, that history, that's everyone would grow something. I mean, it doesn't make sense to import boxes of lettuce if you just keep growing some, like it's not that hard to grow some lettuce and go and pick it as a cut and come again crop. Like why would you want to walk further than just outside your door to get your herbs and your lettuce if if you had those skills? So that's part of it. And I think here reskilling like that is, is very, very, very popular. We have our garden club just swamps the, the local legion and we've got incredible edible veg groups and the permaculture group. So I don't, I don't know what percentage, I think that's a question for Chris Mage. You'll have to have him on a third time. It's like, well, didn't he answer it in his book? It's like, he was saying how many people in that small farm future, he's saying how many people would need to be on the land. And the, One of my favorite inspirations uh, before we even moved here is Charles and Perrine Hervé Gruyère. They have uh, Ferme de Bec, Ferme de Bec, um, in, I want to say Normandy. And they wrote a book called Miraculous Abundance. And I totally stole the image on their on the front of their book is of a, a, a shot from the air of their beautifully laid out garden. Like it's in a, it's like a little half wheel or maybe it's a full wheel. Anyway, I had room for a half wheel. And so I, I designed one of my veg gardens uh, based on that. I've just made them raise beds because life wasn't working. Cooch grass was invading and um, my brain just needed more order. <laughs> hmm. So they are now raised beds, but it's the same thing. Anyway, they w- set about proving how much food could be grown without fossil fuels, without machines, like without, right? right? Um, and they love hand labor. Like Charles is after my own heart. He's he's there with his horses and he's there with his like hand tools because we moved in here, there was a ride-on mower, and they'd kept the grass within half an inch of its life. And the fleas, oh my God, the fleas were awful, my poor cat. And uh, because there's no spiders if there's yeah, no grass. because there was no insects, no life, right. Yeah, yes. and so we sold it instantly, sold the ride-on mower, and I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but I, um, my neighbor gave me a scythe. <laughs> And so I figured out how to. And you use didn't cut your legs like, off, so that was a good start. Forty-year-old. Uh, yeah, there was a shoe with a cut in it, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I probably sliced into my shoe. I didn't even notice." Um, so I learned to use a scythe, but honestly, I, I rarely get it out now because the goats and the chickens and the ducks and the geese, especially the geese, just they are mowing machines. Yeah. 
And uh, there's a certain kind of happiness when they pick the grass out from between something. You're like, thank you. And they're not eating so, all your vegetables because I've we've had the conversation about geese here a lot. Partly we don't have any water, oh, so I'm going no, 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 would. we can't. And they I think would. they'll eat everything. They How would. do you get them off? Okay, well they won't eat everything. They harassed my lavender. That was really weird. Like, why are you? They they tend to um, worry things. They worried a piece of my house off. It's like, what are you doing? But I do a lot of fencing and I've just okay. been learning to use more materials from the land here to make simpler fences and weaving things and we, someone planted a whack of bamboo you can see in the films like it's insanity how much timber bamboo and timber bamboo on chicken manure um is like crack cocaine Rocket for <laughs> like an extra yeah. six feet and so learning to use the fiber on this land is really interesting, but I, I do fence everything away okay. from my chickens. But you so just I'm said about the, the geese, making um, these picking yields. things. When they pick things, how are they? So they're not picking between your lettuces, I'm guessing, because I think they'd eat the Not between the, the lettuces. No, if I let them, they would have the lettuces. But they're going, like, there's a lot of kind of what in permaculture you'd call a food forest. And that's just about wonderful layering right so you've got all the different levels so you might have a herbaceous layer so they're not into a lot of herbs are strong flavors and they don't want that so they'll be picking the herbs the grass out from around the herbs I mean I don't let them walk where I'm eating something like I I don't have to clean it like that but above that say you've got like some nitrogen fixing berries like a gumi or these kinds of shrub layer, and then you go up to a tree layer. So they're they're mowing around my apples because these are, okay. you know, cider apples, all kinds of apples, orchards here. And so they're mowing there. And then above that is like a walnut. And then you might have vines coming up, like the grapevine film. The grapehouse is gone. Like you can't see it now. It's just a vine at this time of wow. year. That's all. That's all there is. This is a great find. Okay, so that's that's a very different climate to here. I had pinned you as being sort of like here, but I doubt we'd get grapevines to grow out outside. Can it, let's take oh, a really? step back. How how long ago did you establish this food forest? You've got walnuts. I'm guessing that wasn't your generation that planted those. So in a minute, I want to look at the food forests and how you managed to establish that in seven years or whether it was already there when you got there. But before we get to that, for people who don't know, can you tell us what permaculture is, what the philosophy behind it is, and then how you have applied it on your acre and a half? Yeah, so permaculture is, um, some people express it as an ecological design So people often understand permaculture as being a bit like organic gardening, but it is actually a structure for design. And so it has several principles that David Holmgren and Bill Mollison originally laid out. And they were drawing on Australian Indigenous culture and their own backgrounds in in forestry and biology. And so they came up with a set of principles and... So this is this is what I'm drawing on. I wouldn't say that permaculture is the only aspect of how I'm working. Like, and I think regenerative agriculture is very much drawing on that, drawing on 
all the indigenous ways of working with the patterns of nature. And so for me, I think the philosophy is like looking at what, what patterns are functioning in a healthy ecosystem and applying that. And it, you don't have to be applying that to a garden. I think that it appealed to me actually because I came out of this First of all, as an artist, it, it appealed to me because the design sense is so strong to say, for example, observe, observe and interact is a principle. So you, you're not just like going in there and doing stuff to a space or a life or a business or whatever. You're paying attention and you're spending time with the space. So in this case, I was spending time with a little bit of land that actually other people had already done. Many, many layers of people had already done so much. And to see, like, where's the sun? How is it moving? How is the building oriented? You know, how cold are we at this time of year? Do we need a fire? Where's our wood going to come from? Where do we store it? What, like, how is the water moving on the property? Uh, before you actually decide where a pond goes, you want to know like, oh, this is getting wet in the winter and like flooding our driveway. Why is our driveway flooding? What's hmm. happening there? What do we need to do to fix this? Like I didn't fix it for two years because I had no idea what was actually happening for two years. And had somebody so, filled in a pond? Good wellies. Had a pond somebody been there? Had, um, there is a pond and there's I call it a creek, but let's be honest, it's a ditch because the theory in that at that time was get the water off your property as fast as possible. And there was a culvert, very old culvert now, probably 30 years, maybe 50, um, because the homestead part was built in 1960 here. Or they right. started building. And so that's where the orchard began to turn into something else. Um and it was an abandoned orchard at that point. So, so you're taking principles like this and applying it. So as an artist, that was really compelling for me. And then I also, like I had a child quite young. We, we had our first child when I was 24. Everyone regarded me like I was a teenage pregnancy because in those days, nobody, nobody was having kids. Like it wasn't until I was 30 that everyone suddenly had kids and, and now it's even later. And what happened with us is that we just lucked out my dear roommate an artist told me about midwifery and it was like set it's just set something in motion right because midwifery is that thing again it's taking into your own hands taking back that power of and trusting the body trusting in the patterns of nature and old wisdom and so that integration then really naturally kind of followed along into attachment parenting which was fascinating because my art practice was all about connection hmm. and intimacy I was making these films of um, like films that were facing other films installations of me looking at myself or I once turned a gallery into a video store where you could rent videos of me like washing my face or brushing my teeth just on a loop. So you're just spending time with that intimate and regarding the camera as if it were a mirror in that case. And so I was playing with Gosh, connection and <laughs> I was playing with, and so I encountered Winnicott and Bowlby who are like 
British attachment theorists. But then I encountered Neufeld, who was in Vancouver, actually, um, at the time I met him. And so attachment parenting is that same pattern again. It's like trusting your child that their needs can be met and the needs will go away when they are met. You, you, you don't need to force them to be independent. You actually are maintaining an attachment. So, you know, we had a family bed. I breastfed for, you know, as long as it was really needed, which turned out to be three or four years. Not like I was breastfeeding a baby, but just that kind of meeting needs uh, in a mutual way. And, you know, crazy stuff, stuff that people think is crazy even now, but everyone else all over the planet does, like yeah. infant pottying, where you're just paying attention to signals, natural signals, and um, taking your child to the loo when they need to go. And so I became so versed in reading those signals, the same way you read your dogs, your cat's signals when they're hungry, you know they're hungry. Or the puppy needs to, to go that. out. Yeah. Puppy needs to go out. And so my second child, our second child was born. And that morning I got up, took her to, you know, the sink and made a little sound. And she had a wee. And she was like, thank you for listening. She stopped using diapers in bed. By the time she was nine months old, we just stopped using them because she would like wriggle if she needed to eat. If she didn't want to nurse, she clearly needed to go pee. So you just don't need diapers. Well, this sort of thing feels like, to me, the same thing as, okay, wait a minute, we don't, we have a water crisis on this island, but we don't need one. 30% is being flushed away. Actually, it's not being flushed away. It's, it's actually sewage that they have to treat and right. to, like deal with. And then like we have a storm and it ends up in the ocean. It's revolting. But we, when we moved in here, the septic was torched anyway. We knew that, like that was negotiated in the price, but we didn't replace it. We piped gray water to a bunch of hazelnuts and we got a beautiful crop and then it filters out into the pears and apple orchard around it and the bamboo. So hang on, tell us a little bit more about grey water. So is that everything that comes from your loo or do you have a composting toilet and it's only the fluids? Tell us just, people, okay, if so this is too much, two, you can I just stop listening parts. for the next five minutes. But this sounds really interesting because this is how we're going to need to sort stuff out. How it did for, I want to know how you knew to do this because I've watched a few videos about it, but I wouldn't necessarily know how to set it up. And then what's yeah. the actual logistics? Okay, so Gordon and Baird have EcoSense EcoSense is in the Highlands outside Victoria. And these were the friends that we just fell in love with and learned so much from. And like literally just went and used uh, the compost loo there. And I was like, this makes the most sense of anything. You know, you go camping to these pits and you think that human waste is revolting. But no other animal is living like this. And we just don't have to. It's just a sawdust toilet and the bucket so we, we installed, so we installed two things. One, gray water. So black water would be like the toxic, toxic waste that we do when we mix feces and urine. Like that's, okay. you don't, you do not want that. Uh, that. That has to be handled correctly. We understand that. 
gray water is just laundry, dishwasher, um, shower. Okay, so and that are you using particular out. soaps so that you're not yes. contaminating yeah. it with stuff? Yeah, exactly. It's not hard to do. Just make sure all your soaps are reasonable. And yeah, you're not going to bleach anything, but you weren't going to do that anyway, because that would be crazy. So you, um, you have those systems going out and it's going to a, a mulch bed, which is basically composting any of the particulate. And you dig the mulch bed out again and compost that stuff. Actually, it's already composting. Put it around a tree put some more mulch in maybe every year and a half. And, and what's the, your meanwhile, mulch? the hazels, like just wood chip. Okay. okay. And then the, and then the compost toilets here, I really like things to be as simple as possible. Like we can, there are compost toilets that do everything for you, but my pet peeve is really anything that breaks and I have to fix it. And if it can't be fixed or they just tell you to buy a new one, I don't want anything to do with that. I have sewing machines that are 100 years old because they still make that little rubber gasket and nothing else ever needs to be replaced. Like right. nothing. Right. The Not needle. too many moving parts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I like the compost toilets to be heavy on the labor for humans and low on the breakable waste technology stuff. So there is a tiny fan that does go, but if the power's cut, it does not matter. Whereas everyone else rurally here, they can't flush their toilet. And when we had a massive windstorm, 2018, you know, 50 electric poles down, never mind all the trees, people could not flush their toilets. Wait, they've got electric toilets? The pumps are running on electricity. So you okay. don't have any water if the power right. is out right. in the countryside. Okay. But never mind that, that we have, we have, we're flushing away all that water. So the compost toilet is just a bucket and you're just layering sawdust in it. I actually, my family are infinitely patient with me and very um, experimental. And they're willing to, as I say, we got rid of our car and they're like, okay, we'll just cycle everywhere. But I'm, I've got a loo diversion my 3.0 uh, design I'm working on because I don't want to carry the heavy buckets. I'm, I'm almost 50 and um, like a perimenopausal body is not a flexible thing. At times I, I work on it. Like I have to do yoga and stuff to make sure I can suddenly do tons of pruning or to suddenly move a lot of ladders or, you know, I'm running. Or empty the, the compost toilet. <laughs> carry the camp. And the part that's heavy is the urine. And the thing is, that's also, even if you don't have a compost toilet, you could right now do what just in Vancouver, you will see, if you pay attention, you will see the elders take a little jar and go out into their garden. And we're grossed out by this, okay? But urine is not a problem. You dilute that one to 10, you put it around a tree. Actually, at Martin Crawford in... Um, you should talk to him. Martin Crawford in... Food Forest Guy is he in, in Devon. Dorset? Yeah, in yeah, Devon. 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 Yeah. So he's... Uh, one of my favorite books. It's so English of him. I love him. Or so not English of him, rather. He's like, this tree could have one and a half peas a week <laughs> 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 for, for like optimum fertility. And so you could just be taking that and and feeding it to your garden because we are in a nitrogen. We're going to have a crisis around fertilizer. That's one of the tipping points, right? We're already having crises about where it's going. 
This is not waste. This is like, I like to say that even if I didn't produce anything else of value today, at least I increase the fertility of our <laughs> land. And so then, so then the compost, we do like 15 buckets in a go and we tip it out into a dedicated bin and it goes, jacks up to really high temperatures, right? Our own nitrogen does that. But what I like to do is add the chicken manure because that oh, stuff wow. is volcanic. Yes. So, um, yeah. So this is, to me, those patterns that are like, they're very sensible. They're often traditional. You know, we have this narrative that goes, people in the past didn't know what they're doing. And that's why they all died of cholera. Right. <laughs> but clearly we're here. And, but our solutions are on the whole, very energy and material intensive, but they really don't need to be. And I think and that's they the need thing not to be quite soon, I think, is the thing. The, the energy pulse is, is over, the, the oil is diminishing, and even if it weren't, we can't keep burning it. So we have to find energy unintensive ways of doing things. Yes. So yes, and you're, you're modelling this. That's what I love, is that you're experimenting so we don't have to. And then you're putting out Apple Turnover TV so we can see what it does. I haven't been down the lists. Is there one all about... Um, compost and composting no, toilets? No, I haven't made a film about compost toilets yet. And so that is definitely Put it on, on the list. list. I've written a piece, I've written more than one piece about it. So I'm, I'm also writing, um, so I have a tiny little book that I'm basically writing in real time. And every now and then I release another part of it, the Journal of Small Work. And so definitely compost toilets are are part of the small work. And I know that that's probably a really major one in terms of people's minds and hearts and like changing how we live. Not everyone like that. That's kind of a, a leap. I get it. I get it. My, my kid had this idea that we could have a bucket system where it's all collected, just like you're recycling. So if you don't want to deal with it, you could just have a community compost and that would be amazing. Like, why not? That's so basic. And you'd be saving 30% of your water right there. And then if everyone has their grey water pipes and then... And this went down how well with the rest of the water, island? Did they I love mean, this I, idea? We haven't actually proposed it. We just managed to get a community... Or we're getting a community compost where the grocery stores can send any waste. And the abattoir, which we've worked so hard to get so that animals don't have to get stressed out and shipped off island um, to be... yeah. Um, so that kind of thing is really more important than me just doing it by myself. Sure. Talk us through a little bit of that, because we compost here, but I am fairly OCD about making sure there is nothing in the compost that the rats would like to eat. Um, partly because I have been in places where you lift up the lid of the compost and you know seven generations of very fat and happy rats leap out. And I'm listening to you talking about the grocery stores and the abattoirs and thinking, oh, there's going to be some super happy rats. And I don't mind feeding the rats. I just would not like them, you know, Okay, this compost system, this is state of the art. It's like okay. a big, it's it's like, think cement truck turning. Okay. Um, it's that kind of thing. You put stuff in, it get, keeps turning, it's generating and it's beautiful about 70 soil. degrees and yeah, okay. How yeah. do you keep the plastic so out of it? Exactly. I don't know. Okay, because otherwise really, you just end up spreading really microplastics all over your land and that's not exactly, a good thing. Exactly, exactly. And I, um, plastic, I have, I haven't been as active in the group, but 
Tommy and I have been running Plastic Free for several years, the Plastic Free Salt Spring, and my kids are real, like they hold me to account. And I became quite ill, you know, two or three years ago, and we had to kind of lower some standards and just buy the spelt bread that's only in a plastic bag for a while, even though it was like, it just about killed me to do it, (laughs) but I I didn't have, I didn't have choices about that. So there are some things we do buy in plastic, but to reduce that microplastic going out into the garden, um, going out into the world, actually it's, you know, the zero waste movement is practically old news. There's, there's so much you can do to live plastic free and I think it's more appealing, say, than the compost toilets to start with something like that. But I think you start with whatever you feel drawn to. If you're excited about mending and learning alterations or you want to learn, like, for example, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a fleece. I've got a spinning needle. I have a fleece. I know the name of the sheep whose fleece it is. Um, right. Like, that is local. That is local. And not so losing you're those spinning traditions. It to weave? Or are you spinning it to knit with? or I would knit with it or crochet, yeah. But weaving is compelling as well. My family, the Finns out east in, in, in Canada, they shared a loom. And that was a basic community thing you did. The Finns had one loom and it went from house to house and you would produce what you needed and pass it on. I think that's a great model. And so I think that's the same possibility for so many things that I'm just doing by myself but we we don't need to like we should be sharing those tools we could use a lot less and not even blink if we're sharing my neighbor's like he's really into his traditional tools as well and he has his post hole digger that he uses for all sorts of things and so whenever I'm trying to put in more fencing like can I borrow your post hole really lovely old vintage I love a good vintage tool hand tool and uh I can only ever use it for like five minutes before he needs it back for something else he's doing with it. <laughs> that, well, that so. seems to be one of the issues with the community tool concept is that so many people get very precious, even about their Black & Decker drill. Never mind their, you know, beautiful vintage yeah. post hole digger. But there's things that there's things that you probably, if you really thought about it, you'd be like, do I really want my own wet dry vac or do I just want to access one when I've had a flood go through my basement? Yeah. Right. And actually when the flood went through my basement, it went through everyone else's basement too. And then (laughs) then there weren't enough to go around and I was lucky to have my neighbor with his wet dry vac. Right. So yeah, community model, I think is fantastic. And then I find it such a pleasure, like a a real mower, you know what I mean by a real mower? Like they spin, it's a spinning blade. Oh yes. Yes. Um, As opposed. And you just push it. You just push it. Like that is, I like my scythe and I like the old school and really learning like that physical movement of how you're going to cut the grass and sharpening it and the sound of it and all of that. But a real mower is also a thing of beauty. And, and I think that's the thing about all of this is when you actually like make your own pasta for the first time with your own eggs and you've milled the flour, I know this is, it feels really far-fetched, but I don't think it really is. It's like freshly milled flour into handmade pasta that doesn't take as long as you thought to make and tastes like unbelievable. 
so like you realize you know what this is like when you yeah. grow your first tomato and you just yeah. think I've been eating a shadow of a tomato all this time and I had no idea but I think that's the same when you take the cider pressings and you pop them in the chicken run with all kinds of leaves and hay mm. and, and and you get amazing eggs into the most you get amazing eggs, but then you get the compost and it's like a yes, chocolate cake true. in there and you dig that out, put that on your garden and then it goes crazy. Yeah. And then you've got the cider and then you turn the cider into apple cider vinegar and then you turn it into an oxymel with honey and fermenting like elderflower in it. Wow. Then you're talking like this is like enormous pleasure. And I think that's the thing that we need to talk more about is actually taking a walk with my goats and seeing what they're eating and taking them to like the invasive, okay, the opportunistic blackberry to eat more of that. And they are so enjoying it. And then their milk is, again, like technicolor Mm. milk. Like you just can't believe this stuff exists. And making yogurt from that, that's like, you're alive in a whole other way. Yeah. Yeah. And you are alive in a whole other way because then your gut biome is alive in a whole other way. There was a really interesting article. Nature does a roundup of stuff that they think ordinary people will be interested in. And the top one that they put out last week was somebody had done a study between some forager hunter, still indigenous communities, peasant farmers in, I think, Mexico and Californians. And orders of magnitude difference in the gut biome. And the Californians had the gut biome that was predominantly oxidative I think I can't remember but it was genuinely basically it was going to kill you much much faster and I imagine if we measured your gut biome so the gut biome is the population of bacteria in your Mm -hmm. gut it's a whole universe in there of -hmm. things that are producing Mm -hmm. things that you need Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and yeah. then you're putting that in the garden. Then you've got the composting toilets, and you're getting all that back out again. It's so you're getting a really interesting virtuous cycle going. And I'm imagining you're, with your food forest that you've got really really deep roots by now, and so therefore you've got the mycorrhizal fungi going really deep as well. And you're bringing up minerals from way 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 down. So I remember mm-hmm. going to a course with Dan Kittredge a while ago, and he said that. You know, vegans are having to take B12 and vegans should not have to be taking B12. It should be in everything they're eating. But because we do this kind of strip mining of the earth with our agriculture where the roots never go down, then they don't have that. So you must be, has anyone done any nutritional studies to see what's the difference between the nutritional density and capacity of the things that you're creating compared to the stuff that you buy in the supermarket? I, I I know that would be fascinating. And I also wonder about bricks. Like people have these meters to test mm. um, sugar levels. And like, I mean, I think what you're getting at is actually the point for me. Like, it's not just the pleasure of doing all that. It's actually that intense collaboration and that the pattern that is mutual and reciprocal so that you're actually... You're not thinking about how you thrive. You're thinking about the entire system and all aspects of it thriving so that you're in collaboration with everything and everything is becoming more diverse and more in more multiple relationships. And this is true whether you're 
your attachment parenting or your gardening or every part of it, right? We want to be making sure our air is getting cleaner and our water is getting cleaner and our soil is getting richer. And I think of that as the collaborative pattern. And I really, like I loved Eisenstein's The More Beautiful World We Know. Is possible. Our hearts know it's possible. Um, I think when I read that, I was it really resonated with what I had been writing about this. You know, understanding the root. I think that's why I like the permaculture design. But I think, I think we need to make sure we we're comprehending the roots of what's going wrong and the roots of what's possible. Hmm. So, I read a book back in art school. Val Plumwood, Feminism and the Mastery of Nature. And it's like such a great basic text. She's actually Australian and into permaculture. She was um, also fought off crocodiles if she was out in the bush and <laughs> needed to, survived it. Um, I didn't know any of that at the time, but she wrote about the structures of our culture. And your podcast has laid this out beautifully already. So I, I really don't need to, but you know, she talked about how we polarize, how we then create hierarchy. So we say things are extremely different from each other. Men and women are extremely different. They have nothing in common. Black people and white people have nothing in common. Not just that, but there's hierarchy. Men are above women. And so we do that with everything. And as I've been writing about this in the writing started when I moved here. Like I've always written, like I've had a journal for decades, but I started writing in the mornings here. I was never an early bird and I didn't write, not like that. So the writing just kind of emerged from the walls and the land. And I think the writing is like looking at this because I think what Val Plumwood was expressing is the competitive, the conquering pattern. And I see that everywhere you see it are converging crises. I think underneath it, you can see the competitive patterns. So the competitive pattern, if I'd raised my children like that, I would have had them cry it out. That's my earliest memory, myself crying it out. Mm. No one's coming. You're on your own. Your emotions need to just be put away and attachment is not dependable. You are independent and you've got to just do for yourself. And then in school, we look at that and like I unschooled my kids to preserve the, the attachment to themselves and their own intrinsic wisdom that we all have. We're not buckets to be filled. We were good enough the moment we were born. And you can meet people who have no education but they are very wise. And mm. that is because life is enough to teach you. You don't actually need the PhD. Like, okay, go for it if that's what you want. But the PhD is us doing that same conquering. We're saying, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you with hierarchy every way through. You've got to beat your peers. You've got to beat each other. You've got to beat each other for a job. And everywhere through that whole beating of each other and winning over is that power over. And that's the competitive pattern. And we need to move to the collaborative pattern of just seeing it differently and doing it differently. What does it look like if it's collaborative and not competitive? 
Yes. And what does it look like? So we haven't got very long left. So two sets of questions arising from that. And the first is I want to know a little bit more about unschooling. I just saw a TED talk the other day where Singapore has apparently decided that all schooling needs to be non-competitive. So they still have schools, but you won't be graded against your peers. Your teachers will still assess how you're doing, but everybody gets to be their own person and school is no longer a competitive thing, which struck me as a really interesting step forward. But you chose to unschool your kids. So I have friends who are homeschooling, but I don't know what unschooling Mm. is and I don't Mm. know how it works. And you told me before we came on air that your youngest child has just gone to college or just finished college. One or the other. My youngest has just... you know, technically, my youngest has just graduated. Oh, if she had been in high school, okay. she's graduated. My eldest is like, yeah, long, long off to college. Oh, so just tell us a little not. bit briefly about what unschooling is and where it has taken them that ordinary school might not have, although yeah. you can't run the controlled trial, obviously. Yeah. So John Holt coined the word unschooling probably in the 80s. He was a teacher who was trying to in the States trying to change the system from within. And at some point he concluded that actually that system is coercive and that people don't learn when they're coerced. That is fear-based and everything you put into that system is twisted. And I think this is hard for people to hear. I know it is, but if you think about like what an amazing opportunity or amazing people that you could have learned from, but actually the attachment is all wrong. Like people aren't attached to those teachers or if they're not attached to their teacher, they don't want to know anything that they're telling them. And actually anything that is in school can become turned off. Mm -hmm. So like you can say, oh, we should teach this in school, but actually you're just taking another thing and turning it off. That is the thing that the kids who have often become peer-centered in attachment theory, where we have a little uh, dial, a little uh, compass of attachment, and it should be to our, um, our parent figure. And when we go off to school, it should be passed like a baton, baton to another parent figure. But what often happens is either you don't have the attachment at all in the first place, or it goes winging around looking for an attachment and gets attached to a peer. And whatever you're attached to, everything else is off. It's protective, right? It's a baby who doesn't grab your hand with that attachment, you know, when they grab your finger. It's a child who's not smiling and nodding and looking in your eyes and talking to you. It's the one that's like crying or turning away from you or just not looking at you. Like we know attachment when we see it, you're sitting at a table, you hand somebody something to eat. So unschooling is... um, keeping that attachment in place. Homeschooling can be too. Unschooling specifically is looking at what um, a person is naturally drawn to and into and understanding that anything that we're into leads to everything else in the world. There's a really nice story that I read when my kid was two and I first said to my sweetheart, like, I think this would be a great way to live. Actually, I approached him wrong. The best way to approach him is not to say, you know, school is this and that and the other thing. (laughs) Because neither of us had a great, actually, I like parts of school, but it, it was torture in other ways. And actually, it was better to say, hey, you know, we could actually go and live in England. Or you could be 
you know, showing them your filmmaking skills. And we did this. They, they made an animation every year for about 18 years. We did a family <laughs> wow. animation. And just following those interests. So Sandra Dodd once wrote an article because she was worried about her kids. She wanted to homeschool them, but they were only into baseball. Only. Nothing else. That was their special interest and everything else was not. Well, you can um, do physics like, and biology and maths. Everything comes out of baseball. There you go. You can do history. You can do the history of fashion. You can do, you can do sociology. You've got everything there. And that's what she wrote. And I saw that and said, like, oh, this is just art school at home. This is mm. just facilitating your project. And whatever your project is, is probably teaching you things that you have no idea, even all the things. So my, my youngest has produced a graphic novel. She's done, I think, four episodes of a graphic novel. So she needs to know graphic design, how to use Photoshop, how, how to tell a story, character development. She needs to understand even how people are reading them these days. She needs to look at feminism and representation she said at 10 years in the future so she's like redesigning the cities she's drawing she's putting in bike lanes and trees and all taking out a parking garage and making it a park and right drawing drawing so you know now and then she's like well I don't know about this and I don't know about that the thing is what we need to learn to do is how to learn yeah and once you know how to learn you can learn anything. And there, yes. John Holt wrote a book called uh, Learning All the Time and I think Never Too Late. And he learned cello kind of as to make the point. He learned cello in his 70s. Wow. To say there's no window. We yeah. don't need to worry about this. Just follow your interests. It will lead to everything else. Yeah. Fantastic. It's been, it's been a delight. And um, like I, it was the best thing I ever did unschooling the kids that yeah, we had we've had a good time and life yeah. learning doesn't stop so that's why I say quote-unquote graduated and are they still both at home on the homestead helping you with your acre and a half or have they flown the nest and gone off to do something wild out in the world my eldest um fledged and and headed off to the city for a while and was kind of um picking and choosing her own university classes and making her own thing out of it. But um, I think she's not alone in being disillusioned by that whole process of university. Like it worked well for my parents. I didn't expect to have a career, not not a career, but like have (laughs) an income coming out of art school. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I should have studied business because being an artist is actually business. I'm doing that now. But um, you, yeah, that whole system is also crumbling, I think. You're gaslighting people at the moment. If you're saying, come and do our course and there'll be a career for you at the end of it, because quite clearly the entire system is folding and those careers are not going to exist. So yeah. you, you could go and do stuff for fun because it's fun. But because you think you're setting yourself up for business as usual, it's plainly not going to happen. Yeah, and they are pretty keyed into that. Okay. Yeah, it would be very hard to grow up in what you've described to us and for that not to be the case. If you were to look 10 years ahead, if your whole island made good choices and there was minimal conflict, and let's assume that the climate stays more or less as it is, where do you think 
you would be as a collective, as a community and individually? Oh gosh, I think we'd be so happy. <laughs> I really think that like so, there's so much struggle and there's so much stress and it's, it is just a grind to get by for so many people. And, um, and even the people who seem to be thriving, the people who have been pre-approved in this culture and have a lot, I don't see a lot of joy there either. I think that it's really lacking. So I, I think actually a lot of the community knit pieces would take care of a lot of unmet needs. So I could see us with slow shared roads and being able to move in a, in a public space that is our roads in a safe way so that we are connecting with each other and our villages being completely walkable, right? Maybe with a circuit of vehicles that do deliveries or um, someone can move you around the village if, you, if you're not mobile, but you can get out safely. And so you do, and having food that is really living, that maybe you had a hand in producing or that you can rely on someone else to produce if you're not able. And to have the land be, you know, without pesticides and regenerated so our forests actually have what they need. Um, so we're taking care of the forest floors and having meandering creeks and making sure that water is holding in the soil and we're not using it up the way we are because we don't need more than 30% of it. And in fact, maybe we're even catching a lot more rainwater in the first place and storing it in soil and that that wildlife is really welcome in the gardens and pollinators and all of this biodiversity is continued throughout and then maybe we also because we don't need as much but we've also got these great bicycle lanes people can come here on electric ferries that don't have cars on them because you don't need to take a car across. Like maybe now and then there's a delivery of something, but it doesn't have to be constant. So then our whale populations are bouncing back and the ocean is doing better than before. You know, I could see us really having a good time. <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's the thing. I could yeah. see us having a great, and people do, there's lots of people here having a great time. I think I think it's just possible to um, to do this with a different trajectory, right? With that collaboration in mind, and we don't have to do this all by ourselves and be struggling. Hmm. We could have a system where this it's you know housing costs and our needs are all of these things are much more aligned, so that we have less needs. And we're not producing waste. And so we can be in community. And frankly, my favorite thing to do with my community um, has to be dancing. And <laughs> I could just see a lot more parties, a lot more dancing, a lot more, a lot more fun. Really, Yay. this could all be a lot nicer than it is. <laughs> that sounds glorious. That sounds so much fun. Yeah. And I can, it's odd how it's, for me, easier to imagine that on an island that I have never seen, but I'm kind of imagining the scale of it. I mean, this is a place you could cycle around in a couple of days, I would say 80 square kilometres, it's not that big. And yet, you've got 12,000 people there permanently and you could 
build a good, you know, a little Dunbar scale, 150 people at a time villages, yeah. all interlinked. That would be amazing. And it would be such an astonishing model for everybody else. Although it'd be nice if everybody else was doing it at the same time, obviously. Wonderful. Yes. Is there anything else that you wanted to say as we head towards the close? We haven't talked about Zootopia oh, at all, about your writing. We haven't talked creating. about Zootopia, yeah, because I did <laughs> Which is how we met. course, and it was incredible and so affirming every, every single week. It was so affirming of exactly this collaborative model and of the small work of, of um, doing these small things in our lives and adjusting, you know, even just in our heads, like even in relationship to our own bodies or, or what we're making for dinner, like how can this be more collaborative? I think that could have been our question just as much as how are we getting from here to yeah. the future we want to be in. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing about it is change doesn't happen in these grand gestures from the top down. Or it, when it does, it doesn't regularly work. David Holmgren, Permaculture, says, you know, it's good to test these things on a small scale. So I'm considering myself and this place as, as testing these things out and having your Lou Design 3.0 and your Food Forest Design 8.0, like figuring out what works and then distributing it. Yeah. So I think that's Zootopian in nature is like <laughs> relocalize it, test it out, and then share it widely and share the stories of what works and what's actually bringing you joy and health and diversity and stability and resilience. Yeah. And find the other people who are doing it and learn from them so you don't feel you're reinventing all of the wheels all on your own. Yeah, That's exactly. so inspiring. Wonderful. In that case, I think that's a wrap. Elisa, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. This has been so much fun and I'm going to go off and explore composting toilets again. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> it's been a great pleasure, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Elisa for everything that she is and does. It sounds such a big step on the way to where we need to go and how we need to be. To talk to someone who's actually implementing most of the things that we talk about on this podcast, the sense of community, the living lightly on the land, the rediscovering all of the ways that we can build and make and eat and clothe ourselves so that we are enhancing the structures of the land and the biosphere and everything around us, and yet having full, fulfilling, inspiring 21st century lives. So there are links in the show notes to Apple Turnover TV and everything else that Elisa does. And I heartily recommend that you head off and be inspired. We can't all have an acre and a half on a Canadian island, but we can all do something with a little bit of land somewhere and tell the stories of the things that are happening. Because Elisa and I met on the Thrutopia Masterclass and story still seems to me to be everything. If we can build the pictures of where we're going and what it looks like when we get there, and the steps that we took to get there, then people will join behind us. 
I do still believe that. So if you need to do anything at all this week, go off and watch Apple Turnover TV and then share it with your friends. As well as sharing this, obviously. And we now have a YouTube channel. Faith has been working her fingers to bones, putting every one of what is now nearly 200 podcasts up onto YouTube. So if YouTube is more your thing, or if you know somebody else where YouTube is more their thing, then please go and listen, share, do whatever YouTube-y things you do. It's not really a space that I inhabit much, so I'm not wholly sure what goes on there, but I gather lots of people consume their podcasts on YouTube. So let's do that thing. And that apart, we will be back next week with another conversation. Enormous thanks in the meantime to Cara C and Alan Lulls of Airtight Studios for the production, to Caro for the music at the head and foot, to Faith for the website and all the extraordinary work on the YouTube channel and the Instagram that I forgot to mention, to Jill Coombs and Anne Thomas for the transcripts because now we seem to be doubling up almost everything, and as ever to you for listening. If you know anybody else who wants to be inspired by composting toilets and unschooling and the ways that we can live lightly on the land, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.